Konnichiwa y bienvenidos a Slide, the Avalanche podcast. My name is Doug Kraus and I'm bringing you episode 10 this week from the ever-deepening depths of the overflow parking lot at Sugaike Kogen Ski Area in Otari Village, Japan. We've picked up over 3 meters in the base in the last week and considerably more at altitude. Most of Western North America has been getting equally pounded, so that's nice. I can't speak for the Northern Alps, but a historic slide wiping out a hotel in Italy leads me to believe that the Southern Alps are getting their fair share. My sincere best wishes and condolences go out to those involved in that tragedy. Hokkaido, near as I can tell from my Facebook feed, is still mostly deep, powdery, and flat. And does anybody ever really know? What is going on in Kashmir? And that's the state of the pack. Kind of snuck it in there on you, didn't I? We got about a half hour of main content this week, so I'm not going to add much more to that. A riff on treating your backcountry skiing as a system, wherein you should look for small flaws that may compound and lead to systemic failure. After that, we got a little story time where I relate the tale of one of my own special systemic failures. And that's it. Here we go. Recently, I was having a conversation with a fellow that is concerned over the way the ski industry manages avalanche risk. We debated the nature of individual responsibility and organizational responsibility and the challenges inherent in each. I won't dive into the details, but we agreed that a culture of blaming the individual is counterproductive. There's a difference between accountability and blame. Blame says, we have found the problem, and it's you, buddy. End of story. Take your medicine, or I will shove it down your throat. Accountability seeks broader context. There's a growing backlash against the blame culture that typically surrounds recreational avalanche accidents. It's not much of a stretch to see how knee-jerk reactions like, how could they be so foolish? I would never do that. Don't really accomplish anything. Lynn Wolf is the editor at the Avalanche Review. Almost every time I bounce an idea off her, she replies with an archival essay that discusses the same or a similar idea. It's pretty amazing, and I am deeply fortunate to have someone that is constantly stoking the mental embers, blowing gently at a whiff of smoke or dumping her beer on a grease fire. She sent me an article from February 2014 by Dale Atkins called A Different Way to Think About Avalanches. And it argues that there are a number of ways that we could think of avalanche accidents as not being preventable. The first line that jumped out at me was, avalanche accidents are a failure of a very complex system. The interaction of people and avalanches. If you frame an accident or near miss as the failure of a very complex system, it takes some serious hootspah to place the blame on a single individual. This was the next keeper. Many enthusiasts take avalanche education not to improve their safety, but to improve utility or benefit 
to seek steeper slopes and deeper snow. From there, it's not much of a leap to suggest that all avalanche education is a form of risk homeostasis. The only reason we seek the education is so that we can feel good about accepting risk traveling in avalanche country. I think that's kind of a sleeping whopper. Elephant seal snoring on the beach. The third was Dale's quotation of James Reason's definition of judgment. The ability to evaluate a situation, assess evidence, and come to a reasonable decision without following rules. That is just a perfect slow pitch right over the plate for describing how susceptible our judgment is to failure. Think about avalanche country. Are there factors that interfere with our ability to evaluate situations? Yes. They are legion. And if you can't name a half dozen off the top of your head, you should probably stay on the sidewalk and wait for the bus. Do we have evidence problems? Again, in the technical sense, duh. The nature of uncertainty and avalanche hazard clearly established that we have evidence problems. Well, what about objective assessment problems? Are humans good at making reasonable decisions? Perhaps you've heard of this human factor thing the media is so enamored with these days. I abhor that term, the human factor, because I think it's become trite and grossly oversimplifies a vast and diverse set of issues. But I feel a lot better about all the stupid stuff I've done over the years after learning how prone we humans are to doing stupid stuff. Lack of objectivity is one of our defining characteristics. If these notions of complexity, risk acceptance, and frail judgment don't lead you to believe that avalanche problems are broader than the guy that wants to give her, allow me to quote, Lewis Carroll. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. That's mad in the British sense, that describes mental instability or foolish conduct, not mad in the also British sense that conveys extreme enthusiasm. But for our purposes, perhaps it's both. Surely accepting the risk of an avalanche accident makes one at least a bit mad. Most of human society would say so. In a near miss or accident, We can all plead the insanity defense, the human factor, to some degree. But defending our decisions is counterproductive. 
we need to ask how we wound up in a position where a questionable decision seemed reasonable. Last week, we talked about teamwork, which leads us towards viewing avalanche problems in a broader context, beyond individual foibles, a context that highlights the interaction among partners. Dale says the interaction of people and avalanche problems is a complex system. A system is a set of things working together as parts of a mechanism or an interconnecting network. That sounds a lot like a team. I think our backcountry team is a system. Perhaps a look at our backcountry behavior from a systemic perspective would be beneficial. Highly reliable organizations take a systemic view towards risk management, and they seem to do a pretty good job at it. Our buddy Jimmy Reason says that a systemic approach to risk management requires accepting that individual error can be a consequence of system deficiencies. You ain't stupid. We're just doing it wrong. So, assuming you are not yet sick of me telling you what to do, here's some suggestions for approaching your backcountry travel from a systemic perspective. Systemic catastrophe is often the sum of several or numerous smaller flies in the ointment. The little things are important. She didn't see that. He wasn't listening. We didn't plan very well. And then we encountered the turd vortex. The little things do matter. When reviewing an accident or near miss, you will often come to find that the little things matter a lot. I encourage you to nitpick your great days. Your team is your system. Think about the micro rants and meat we've been gnawing on. If my buddy doesn't have EMS training, that's a flaw in our system. If we can't communicate at a distance, that's a flaw in our system. If notions of goals and priorities and roles differ among team members, that's a flaw in our system. If we don't communicate effectively, that is a systemic time bomb. Allow me to rip a corner from the Canadian technical aspects of snow and avalanche risk management publication. It takes ISO 31000, the international standard for risk management, and tries to apply it to the world of operational avalanche risk management. And that's a mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. We'll just take a corner so as not to overwhelm. Risk management should be a systemic and structured process. Okay, we're on the right track. Shame we have to add structure to our powder wrecking, but okay. The smart people say so. Risk management should be an integral part of organizational processes. Eesh. I've never thought of going skiing with friends as an organizational process before. 
but it is. And risk management is not an integral part of my backcountry team's shrouping process. It's something we talk about when we have an apparent reason to, but the international standard says that is not enough. It's probably legit, so there's something to work on. Risk management explicitly addresses uncertainty and assumptions. Does your BC team explicitly address assumptions and uncertainty every day on every run? Mine does not. I do in my head, but uh, our system sure don't. So that's something to work on too. Risk management should take human factors into account. I do that on a personal level, and I forecast human factors in my partners, but we rarely discuss them purposefully. So that's another thing to work on. I don't think I can take much more right now. In the same Avalanche Review issue as Dale's article, Jeff Jackson has a piece on using systems theory to analyze accident events. He describes a core process theory for analyzing our risk management. So what are the core processes associated with our backcountry skiing? Uh, Maybe we can divide them into planning, reassessment, decision, and action. That's not far from the observe, orient, decide, act loop that American fighter pilots use, so maybe, yeah, maybe it's a good vector for us too. This would bear some similarities to the avalanche risk management process described in that Canadian book with the long fancy name. They separate risk management into planning and operational specific streams that cycle through the three phases of establishing context, risk assessment, and risk treatment. Each phase is continually informed through communication and reassessment. I'm sure that is fascinating to many of you, but we simply can't have the rest falling asleep and driving off the road. So that's where I'm leaving the technical manual and returning to stinky dudes going skiing. This is not a well-researched or deeply cogitated upon process. This is just me riffing on the idea of breaking our day up into a planning reassessment cycle that supports decision and action. On a planning level, I think about the snowpack first. Then I apply the recent and forecast weather to that. I think about who I may go skiing with. And then I apply that to the terrain. Straightforward process that goes all the way back to Doug Fessler and Jill Fredston's avalanche triangle. I just mixed it up a bit. Snowpack, then weather, then humans. And then what terrain may fit that combination. Usually I've already got a snowpack model in my head, but I'll certainly check the weather forecast the night before and think about how that may affect the pack. Most folk will check the avalanche bulletin. Good idea. 
I'll start ruminating on who I'd like to ski with and who might be around and fit any sort of incipient plan I've got. Where to ski and with who. If the who is easy, we'll probably ballpark a start time and come up with a few potential objectives. The morning is similar, but more of a reassessment. That's a good sign if your morning routine is reassessing a plan and not coming up with one from scratch. Has anything changed? On a normal day, we'll continue to assess terrain options as we gather additional information. Heading out, gearing up, and getting going is another reassessment phase. Are you seeing a pattern here? We're going to be sucking up OBS all day, and every one of those is part of a reassessment cycle that feeds our decision phase. Situational awareness. This is a good time to have an overt discussion regarding weather and snowpack and risk tolerance for the day. Overt means you actually physically speak on the subjects. I'm also human forecasting. What sort of brain traps is my partner susceptible to? And what sort are most likely to snare me today? Maybe you have to make a terrain decision before you start up. Or maybe you don't. I prefer options. The more, the better. Because I won't stop reassessing until I crack that first beer at the end of the day. Even then, I'm probably reassessing my beer and food situation. I am a genuine pathological reassessor. Think about how your weather, terrain, and human assessment is applied to your terrain selection. Does it fit? Are you forcing it? Think hard about the uncertainty associated with each. If you don't have a lot of recent weather data or conditions may change, you better have a backup plan. If there is a lot of uncertainty in the snowpack, you better have a margin. If you're hanging with some dude you never skied with before, that is a wild card. One-eyed Jack or the king with the axe. And then, dropping in may be your final decision point. Your last chance to reassess. You are moving into action, so go through it all again. Particularly uncertainty and bias. If you're just asking, is everybody good with this? Here. You're asking for a silent bunch of nodding heads. Alpine bobbleheads bobbling in the breeze. What about asking what could go wrong with this plan? That might get you somewhere. And that's about all the process I can take right now. (laughs) Sorry, that's all I can take right now. This systemic risk management stuff seems mighty cumbersome. And we're barely scratching it. Yet my cup runneth over and beateth on my Gore-Tex. It generally runneth, I didth not spilleth it. Sorry, but plotheth <coughs> process gets easier and more reliable with repetition. Eventually, it becomes habit and ideally 
instinct, and the burden melts away. Is it worth it? Oh, that's your call. We call it cabin. In 1997, the path ran 1,800 feet, crossed the South Fork of Cement Creek, climbed 150 feet, and knocked a two-story cabin on the far side off its foundation while the residents slept upstairs. Cabin is big relative to a human. I've probably skied it close to 100 times. These days, the ski area controls cabin. It doesn't run like it used to, and it doesn't inspire the fear that it used to. It was November 8th. The ski area hadn't opened yet. My buddy is Zeppo, and I thought hitting cabin was a good idea. We know the terrain intimately. We'd been knocking about the zone and felt like we had a good handle on the snowpack. It was a standard early season San Juan junk show, still thin. Thoughts of wind slab on facets plagued the alpine. They were grumpy, but they weren't really connecting yet. The weather wasn't doing anything dramatic or unusual. Big near surface and full pack temp gradients were sapping strength from the pack like a couch with a bag of chips. It was facet surfing season, and we were searching for a long subalpine tube to shrop. Zeppo and I both love fiddling with the avalanche puzzle and finding that shot that threads the needle's eye of risk versus reward. Zeppo's got kids. I am fear-averse. We play at a high level, but drinking beer together at the end of the day is more important than crushing it. I don't consider us big risk takers. Of course, my perspective may be skewed. I I guess it might be radically skewed. That morning, we sailed up the mountain under bluebirds and into the doldrums. It's a short 40-minute skin from the road to the ridgeline. Our intended route through cabin barely tipped 35 degrees in the start zone. The terrain would prevent us from watching each other, but a familiar mind's eye view allowed tracking and timing of progress. I dropped in, out of sight, and almost immediately encountered an unanticipated hard slab. No surfing. (laughs) Yikes. Fly like a butterfly. A few big light turns cleared me the start zone and Put me in the cohesionless tube where I squiggled for a bit, then posted up on a rib to the side, and I waited. I thought, maybe, I heard a yell. Curious. I held my breath and pricked my ears. I heard, I think, another, another yell, not a cry. A warning cry? I left. Most ricky tick. 
A quick kick turn and hard traverse brought me into a densely treed area adjacent to the avalanche path. I turned in time to see the wrath firing down cabin like an arroyo flashing in a deluge. The initial loose snow shockwave was several stories high. Hot on its heels, a cataract of debris churned down the gully, overrunning adjacent terrain features. In a moment or two, it it passed, and, and I yelled, I'm okay. Emotion pressed behind my chest and my eyes, and I yelled again, I'm okay. Zeppo appeared above me, making slow, cautious turns. We descended through the debris, and we went home. I sent a report to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center at the end of the day and described this as an unsurvivable avalanche. But we survived. We're still here. What went wrong? Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Over. The next day, I returned to the scene of the crime with a driving need to learn from our experience. I've rehashed the event dozens of times in my head, and I've made some changes because of it, but it's notable how resistant I was at first to admitting the small, obvious flaws in our system that were to blame. Let's jump in the old wayback machine and debrief this relative to some of the concepts we've talked about just now and in previous episodes. Let's think about how we found ourselves in a position that could easily have killed us both. Rehashing the International Standards for Risk Management. It should be systematic and structured. (laughs) Nope, didn't do that. It should be an integral part of the process. Mm, Nope. It should explicitly address uncertainty and assumptions. Eh, Nope. It should take human factors into account. No. So we pretty much shit the bed. If you apply any kind of standard to our risk management for that day. In our defense, I think Zeppo and I usually do better. Likelihood of triggering, exposure, and consequences are all things we normally talk about a lot. Uncertainty and assumptions were not. But they are now. Let's look at our planning and reassessment cycle up to decision and action. Planning-wise, we talked about the pack and thought we had a handle on it. We didn't talk about the weather, but it had been pretty much benign for at least the last, like, 72 hours. We were going to ski together, so no wild cards there, and we had already decided on a target, so... 
no terrain decision was necessary. The decision was already made. The pack was exactly as we thought it would be in the part we wanted to ski. But it was crucially different in the start zone. Our weather history and forecast were valid, but they didn't go far enough back to pick up on the wind that formed a slab over the near-surface facets at the top of cabin. Shafted in time and space. No doubt our reassessment wheels were spinning on the drive up and the skin up, all confirming what we already believed. Yet none of those obs were from a representative slope. And when we got to the top, it was go time. No final check. It's been a long time, so I don't recall the details perfectly. I refuse to believe that we failed to even look at the slope, since it is clearly visible from numerous points along the ridge. Obviously, we didn't see the wind slab, nor did we chuck anything at it to gauge the surface hardness. Then we chose the entry point where we gauged the likelihood of triggering to be lowest, the lowest angle entry. Even though a person standing on the ridge 75 feet to the left could have watched most of the bowl, we didn't do that. Even though a person standing adjacent to the old growth near the toe of the start zone could have watched a skier with a reasonable degree of security, we didn't do that. When I finally dropped in, our mistake was immediately apparent to me. Or was it? Am I just telling myself that? I got out of there fast but I didn't stop high enough where I could maintain verbal contact. So I guess I recognized the threat to me, but figured Zeppo would be able to manage it just as I was. In any case, we were unable to communicate at a distance. I know if either of us had said the magic words hard slab to the other, that would have been the click moment. But I couldn't report on the line because we didn't have radios. I I think that covers the bulk of our failure points. Certainly as many as I can stomach. To recap, our planning was flawed regarding the interplay of weather, snowpack, and terrain. Right from the start, we short-circuited the decision-making process by having a strong inclination for a particular target. Our reassessment was weak at best, and it ceased altogether right when we needed it most. We failed to address the roles of uncertainty and assumption. We didn't discuss any brain traps that might be serenading us towards the rocks. We eschewed basic visual protocol. 
and we put ourselves in a position where we were unable to communicate with each other. I will not assert that these are small errors that culminated in an earth-shaking near-miss. Call them what you will. I do believe that eliminating any single one of them would have likely resulted in us changing our plan and avoiding the path altogether. We accepted our plan as good and valid rather than one that relied on significant assumptions. Less confidence would have triggered more reassessment. With the decision made, I think we probably felt like all we had to do was get there and do the deed. We were not wedded to the idea, but not thinking about where we were going to ski short-circuited our process. A process that normally would be obsessed with the nature of the snow on any potential target. If it had been treated as a tentative plan, we would have been more primed to seek evidence. Even had the plan been firm, there's no excuse for not doing a pre-drop systems check. That would have led us to scrutinize the bowl and likely revealed the nature of the snow surface. An overt discussion of uncertainty and assumptions would have clearly revealed the gaps in our logic and driven us to seek more information. We never discussed the pitfalls of being so confident, of being so immersed in the local snow and terrain. Looking at it from the brain trap side should have triggered a questioning of our assumptions. You can tell when someone is expecting to ski cohesionless snow and winds up skiing on a hard slab. Often they will curse. I did. And their physical posture makes it quite evident. That would be an alert. Finally, there is no doubt in my mind that had we had radios, I would have called in a report to the venerable Zeppo and said, It's all hard slab, man. I would not ski it. So now we ski with radios. And that's part of the story too. A big part, actually. Because after pondering this for days, I came up with an easy solution. The solution that was most protective of my ego. No, we didn't fall prey to a series of easily avoidable procedural errors and brain traps. We just needed better comms. That does not even address the fact that I would have had to ski the thing in order to provide a warning via the precious radio. Yet, it was the resolution I accepted for a really long time. It was only when I sat down and purposefully dissected this tale to list every single thing that went wrong, that the light shone through. <laughs> if you were starting to think I'm some kind of guru, well, 
I'm real sorry to pee all over your cornflakes. I ain't that. But there is a moral to this coda. Good judgment does not come from experience. Good judgment does not just arrive like a beautiful maiden on a pretty pony and proclaim, ye have survived and now I shall stay with you always. Beautiful southern maiden. You have to fight for good judgment and rip it from the clutches of ego and easy answers. Debrief until you bleed. The good days and the bad. That is a critical component of our process and our system. If it's easy, you're doing it wrong. And that's a wrap. Thanks for playing. If you're digging this, I encourage you to subscribe to Slide, the Avalanche podcast on iTunes or Android. We've even got a handful of reviews up on iTunes now, so muchas gracias to those who took the time to do that. Feedback is always appreciated, particularly constructive criticism. Hopefully you're taking that much away from this episode. I've updated all the old episodes to fix some technical deficiencies. You can hit me up on our Facebook page by the email address avalanchepodcast at gmail.com. Or there's a fairly active thread on the Teton Gravity Research website in the Slide Zone forum. The music, as always, is provided by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Emotional support is provided by the Avalanche Review and DPS Skis, the greatest powder tools in the universe. Trust me, I know. To all of you that have reached out to offer me your words and ideas, I've read them all and I write most of them down for future reference. So, thank you. Pray for snow.